1: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Ada Athanasopoulos-Zikos, who is an associate professor at the University of California at Berkeley. We'll be talking about the intricate world of soil liquefaction. We'll also be talking about liquefaction within gravelly materials. We'll talk about the concerns for this aspect of geotechnical engineering. We'll talk about how to analyze for this complexity, that being liquefaction, and we'll also talk about some potential solutions. So get ready to embark on this illuminating journey as we dissect the challenges that are associated with liquefaction. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. But before we get started, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor for today's episode, that being Tensar a division of CMC.
2: Check out Tensar Plus, the award-winning design software for construction professionals to design with geosynthetics and calculate their value on projects. Tensar Plus is simple to use with a powerful engineering system at its core. It leverages our decades of research and experience with soils all over the world, so you can count on your solutions working the first time, even in the most difficult conditions. Whether you're designing a crane pad or need to build a temporary road over muck, the cost, time, and carbon savings can be calculated, making comparison with alternatives simple. Specs, reports, and product data can be generated for your design. And, training resources, research, and our third-party expert reviews are all provided conveniently in the software if needed. Usable both online and offline, the app is available in-browser and on all major mobile platforms. Whatever you're working on, Pensar Plus is your toolbox for success.
1: Ada, welcome to the show. How
3: are you doing? Hi, Jared. Great to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation.
1: Thanks for coming on, first off. We appreciate you being here. Would love it if you could share a little bit more about your academic journey at the University of California, Berkeley, where I understand you did both your master's and also your PhD in geotechnical engineering. And how did that shape your career focus? Like, how did you get to where you are today?
3: The path starts all the way back to when I was six years old. And my father bought me a book titled, Why Do Earthquakes Happen? Now, to provide a little bit more context, because um, that may sound weird, my father is also a geotechnical engineer and a professor at the University of uh, Patras in Greece, where I grew up. And so he wanted to make sure that we knew about earthquakes very early on. It was all about earthquake safety, also in the house, while at the same time observing the effects of earthquakes. So I was also asked at the age of 12, during an earthquake, to notice which direction the lights were moving. (laughs) So, a very colorful journey. Um, All of that actually made me say that when I was growing up, I was not going to be anything like my father. Of course, I had to take all that back because... I can only hope to be like him uh, as a professional and a person. But um, my undergraduate studies were at the University of Patras in Greece in the civil engineering department there. And then, as you mentioned, I went to Cal at UC Berkeley for my master's and my PhD. And then, after that, I joined the University of Michigan, the civil engineering department there, as an assistant professor. And I was there as faculty for 11 years before moving back to California and now being an associate professor at UC Berkeley. There's a lot of books that you got, right? I'm sure there are other books, but why did you end up going into it, especially with the focus on earthquakes? Well, that's a great question. And I love asking people that question because everybody has such a different journey and everybody has that moment when things clicked and they knew that this was the path for them. And for me, in all honesty, and I think for many high schoolers at that age, I don't think you're ever truly aware of what a certain profession really entails and, you know, what you're going to be doing as a civil engineer, let's say, on a day-to-day basis. I enjoyed math, physics, and chemistry. I knew that that was, uh, you know, a direction that I wanted to follow. And I wanted to do something that used these types of sciences and material. And, uh, you know, quickly, I realized that that was placing me somewhere in engineering. And I think what really sold me on civil engineering is that I could really see, right, have tangible evidence of the impact of this profession on the quality of everyday life. Just looking at the infrastructure around us was really mesmerizing to me. The transportation systems, water systems, and so many things that we all completely take for granted on a daily basis. And yet once one of these things, right, not all of them, but one of these things, for whatever reason, gets temporarily removed from our everyday life, I think we all know what happens after that, right? And all the colorful expressions we use about, you know, why this is not like that and why this is happening. So I think that that was something that really spiked my interest. And of course, it was during my undergraduate studies that I then kind of fell in love with geotechnical engineering, I think just because of all the uncertainty, believe it or not, and how every case was different. And I felt that we didn't have control over how certain things were made, like the subsurface, but then it would be our job to figure that out so that we can apply it properly to design and other things. So. Oftentimes nobody talks about the
1: geotech until something's not working right. Unfortunately, it's the way it goes. And you're right with infrastructure as critical infrastructure. There's no civilization without in infrastructure. And it's so critical, but we do take it for granted. We're talking about earthquakes. Let's talk about liquefaction, soil liquefaction. What is it? Why is it significant to geotechnical engineering? And for context, yes, we have professionals that listen to this show, but we have a lot of students. We have people that are thinking about going into geotech, we have people that are undergrads, people are grad, PhD. So you have a big audience here, so however you choose to answer this, I know we could do integrals and we can get very deep, I'll let you describe it how you want to describe it, but what is soil liquefaction?
3: Absolutely, and and I'm very glad to hear, uh, but not surprised that you have such a diverse audience. You know, this is just such a great idea what you're doing. You know, with soil liquefaction, essentially it's a phenomenon that will happen during earthquakes provided certain conditions. You have certain types of materials that are going to be susceptible to this phenomenon. They need to be saturated and they need to undergo some type of rapid loading condition that will induce what we call undrained conditions. Essentially, that water that lives inside the pore space, the void space between the grains has nowhere else to go. So temporarily, it kind of freaks out, increases pressure and that essentially results in this phenomenon where the material now starts to lose strength essentially it can have a scale right where you know it can lose all its strength it can lose part of its strength and that's you know one of the challenges when we deal with soil liquefaction it's not always the completely catastrophic mechanism that we often see in pictures if you google the internet and you know you put literally the words soil liquefaction earthquakes you're going to be inundated with pictures about the devastating consequences that this phenomenon can have. But it's not always to that extreme. However, even at smaller levels, it can have a very detrimental impact to your infrastructure, depending on that threshold. So by the material losing its strength, it's no longer able to carry the loads that it was designed to carry. It's now deforming and moving in ways that it wasn't supposed to move during the original design. And so it can affect infrastructure both above the ground, but also underground, which I think is another important thing to bring up. So if you have lifelines, you know, pipelines, other infrastructure below ground that's surrounded by material that undergoes this type of phenomenon, then that can also uh, be affected. If you track basically damage incurred in the earthquakes uh, that we've experienced in the past, you're gonna see that a very large percent of damages ties back to this phenomenon, which is the reason why not just myself, but many researchers over many decades have been focusing on and studying.
1: So more bang for the buck here. It's like if we can solve liquefaction and we can plan for liquefaction, we know earthquakes are gonna continue to happen, we're gonna be in a better position. We talk about liquefaction oftentimes, even in think about soils classes. I've been focused a lot on soil liquefaction. So, loose soil, low end values that are below the the groundwater level, all liquefaction can happen. But can gravels liquefy? And
3: talk about that a little bit. It's important to recognize that even though there has been so much work done on liquefaction for the reasons that we just mentioned before. Liquefaction has different steps, and so the step of figuring out whether your site is going to be affected, whether it will actually happen at your site, whether liquefaction will trigger, as we say more technically, is the first step. There are many other steps that come after that, which are answers to the question, so what? Do I really care? Because sometimes the answer to so what is, so nothing, right? And I can move on limited cases, but that could actually be the answer for your specific site. And so as engineers, we shouldn't just answer whether liquefaction will actually trigger, which is the first part of, you know, the question that you asked me that I'm going to get to, but also what does that mean for the performance of the infrastructure that I'm dealing at this specific project site? As we know, projects have very different thresholds. We have extremely sensitive infrastructure that has extremely low thresholds in terms of displacements that can be accommodated. And then we have other types of infrastructure, critical infrastructure, like dams, for example, that are more tolerant, right? And when we are talking about dams, a few millimeters of deformation, sometimes you won't even know it happened, right? When for other cases, it can be very detrimental because you have very sensitive equipment, for example, in a structure that's not allowed to move more than a fraction of a millimeter or something like that. So it's important to always think about that component when talking about soil liquefaction. Now, going back to the first part of the question, when we're trying to answer, well, will it actually happen in the first place? The materials that have traditionally been associated with this phenomenon have been the materials that we call sands. And, you know, when we give names to materials, typically it has to do with the grain size for those listening in that maybe have not necessarily have their soils class yet, which if you haven't, please go get one. But uh, the finer grain materials, as we call them, those with grain sizes smaller than sands, typically they exhibit other characteristics like higher plasticity indices that basically save you from experiencing soil liquefaction. You might still deform because of other mechanisms and you may still be dangerous, don't get me wrong, but it may save you the soil liquefaction analysis. On the other side of the spectrum, from grain sizes that are larger than what we would uh, call sands, which would be the gravels, in the past, some people had hypothesized that because of this larger grain size, the material is able to drain these excess pore pressures that are generated during this loading that we said leads to this phenomenon. And therefore, perhaps it's a material that we don't have to worry about soil liquefaction happening. However, we've had several earthquake events, some older and some more recent, where we have seen clear evidence of this phenomenon happening with gravels because gravels can be mixed with other materials that have smaller grain sizes that will still reduce your hydraulic conductivity, or it may be capped on top and below by soil layers that are of lower hydraulic conductivity. And so these conditions would still create the undrained loading type that you would need. To temporarily exhibit this phenomenon. So, gravel can liquefy. And has liquefied.
1: It has liquefied, right? So, this is something we need to be thinking about. So, what are the primary challenges you face when assessing the potential for gravel liquefaction?
3: So, it goes back to what I was talking about before in terms of grain size. And so, because sands have been the material traditionally tested, and again, when I say traditionally tested, These types of statements obviously don't reflect 100%, right? There's always these exceptions. But the vast majority of work has been around either sands or the finer grain materials. And so that means that most of the laboratory testing devices have been tailored to serve that grain size. And so as the grain size increases, that means that you have to fit more of them into your device to have what we would call a representative sample of the material and to avoid boundary effects with the the testing device that you're using. And so all of that has to significantly increase once you go from a sand to a gravel. And that's true both for the lab as well as the field. And this is, I think, where a lot of the challenges around these materials come. The reason why we hadn't had in the past more testing, you know, better characterization Better methodologies to understand their behavior, especially under seismic conditions.
1: From a field standpoint, oftentimes people likely are not testing the gravel, right? They're, it's just like, oh, we have gravel, right? And you just continue on to the next strata. That's got to be a challenge as well.
3: Exactly. I have sat, you know, with groups that had to reevaluate, for example, dams that were built in the fifties and sixties that are now up for re-evaluation to make sure everything's still working the way it needs to be and there's no uh, further mitigation needed. And whenever we encounter these materials, the investigation is always very limited. And again, I think it's a combination of the difficulties with characterizing these materials in the field and in the lab. And also, I think this feeling, this past feeling of these materials perhaps being safer whether it's because of their higher hydraulic conductivity or the expected higher hydraulic conductivity. Perhaps, you know, when you think of gravel, for whatever reason, you're visualizing a material that's stiffer or stronger, right? Whatever the context is, it's not necessarily the material that first comes to your mind as, oh, that's going to be the weak point of my infrastructure. But it can very well be. And I think we need better guidance, you know, better methodologies, more robust techniques for testing and field characterization.
1: Liquefaction within gravel, how does that specifically threaten critical infrastructure and that could be bridges, buildings, utility lines, what are some things come to mind there?
3: It's basically a combination of, you know, what we were saying before this material existing either as part of naturally deposited materials, right? So that means that we didn't place it there. Nature did sometime very, very, very long ago. It exists as part of the foundation materials where a bridge abutment, for example, is founded or a bridge pier or some type of other infrastructure like dams. Or it's the material within which we had to um, dig to place pipelines or other type of buried infrastructure. Or it can be the material that we actually ourselves have used as fill material. So that's also the case, for example, for dams. Sometimes we see that with levees, you know, as part of flood protection systems, but it wasn't placed the way it should have been, meaning it wasn't compacted the way it should have been. And so it may still be a problematic material. And so when this material undergoes the seismic loading and you are in the case of liquefaction triggering, then you can exhibit deformations that basically go beyond what is acceptable for this type of infrastructure. The extreme consequences, as I mentioned before, can be a total collapse, like a huge slope instability for a dam or a levee. It can be a bearing capacity type of failure for a bridge pier, or bridge abutment, uh, some other retaining system. So it's really important, again, to be able to predict whether you think that's going to happen and then do something about it. And you know There are a lot of things that we can do about it if we know that this is something that may threaten a certain project.
1: What are the rules of laboratory testing, uh, field exploration, numerical monitoring? Like each one of these differs as far as how it's used to assess soil liquefaction risk, but how does it all play together? There's a lot of things people would say in the tool belt or in the kit of parts, or whatever you want to call it, but how does it all come together?
3: That's an excellent point. And, you know, it kind of takes me back to when I was a grad student. I remember being told as I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for my PhD. Some people would tell me, well, you need to sit and think, Ada, are you a loud person? Are you an numerical modeler? You know, what are you? Are you a field person? And I understand that at times in someone's career, you have to go deeper into one of these areas, right? To develop expertise, you have to spend time, focus time on really, again, going deeper into these things. But I always wanted to be able to do everything Because I always thought that with research, everything has a positive role to play and everything has something to contribute, basically, to bring to the table. And so even though at times during my career, I have focused on different parts, I have tried to, in the projects that I work on, integrate laboratory testing with field exploration, documenting high quality case histories, which are nature's full scale experiments for us, And so we need to maximize what we learn from those, as well as numerical modeling, which allows us to take some situations further into hypothetical scenarios now that we can't necessarily recreate in the lab or in the field. And so I think, you know, everything has a role to play in here. Obviously, for me, at least, the very important thing is that they're all done, you know, at very high quality meaning that you really understand what you're doing, you have appropriate input parameters, you know, definitely for the modeling, for example, that you understand exactly the mechanisms, how the lab device is working, you know, what it's supposed to be doing, the various controls, the various soil models you're using within your numerical modeling, right? So all of these pieces have to be studied and have to be done correctly so that then the output, right, is representative of what you're trying to do. And then even once you get the output it's very important to recognize that that's again not the last step right the last step is as an engineer to take that and interpret that and that's where you know engineering judgment comes and that's why that's something very important and highly valued and this is why people get better with time right it's very very difficult from the first year on the job unlike other disciplines where that may actually be the case right as long as you learn how to do something you can pretty much do it very very well from day 1 but i think in our profession the things that you learn from every different project that you work in and i'm sure you know you know this better than i do just adds right to that knowledge to that experience and makes that judgment even better
1: you're right and when you were saying that i was also just thinking about how you know the more researchers or the more we work in a certain area, we get better for that area too. So I don't know, work along San Andreas Fault or maybe Christchurch It's like where these events keep happening. And it's like, we're getting more data, we're getting more case histories. And it's like, well, we know we're working in this area. We have to account for X, Y, Z. Yeah, absolutely. As geotechs, you have to know it all. So is there one method that you find to be the most effective when we're talking about a solid or is it really, it's a combination of all the approaches? to get an accurate assessment of whether or not we're going to liquefy.
3: I would have to go with the combination. And as I said, however, you know, every certain part has a lot to bring that the others can't necessarily contribute. And so it's about, right, creating this sufficient overlap between them that you are seeing all the pieces of the puzzle or at least parts of the pieces of the puzzle as you're trying to figure out what it is that the puzzle is, is saying. And so, you know, with laboratory testing, I think one of the great advantages is that we're in control of the conditions, right? We dictate the density of the material we're testing, the grain size distribution, the loads that we're applying, how fast are we applying, right? Everything is under our control in a way. And so that allows you to very systematically study the effect of these parameters, right? You keep everything the same and you just change one parameter and you can really see the impact of that parameter. Now in the field on the other hand and you know those who are more in favor of field testing the advantage that typically comes up and rightly so is that when you're testing the material in the field you are testing it in its natural state the way the earthquake is going to test it and so you haven't disturbed its fabric which is a very important you know geotechnical engineering quality that's very difficult to quantify right so what is fabric and yet Fabric controls so many aspects of the responsive materials, and the truth is that for a lot of materials, we can disturb that, we can alter that when we go into the ground to remove material, to bring it into the lab, to test it, right? So it's difficult to recreate in the lab what nature perhaps took thousands of years creating in the field. So that's the big advantage of the field, but you're testing it in whatever loads, right, and conditions exist at that time. So you can characterize that material, but then if you realize that the material further down the road is a little bit denser, you can't necessarily make the link, well, if this material behaved some way, then that material is going to behave that way. And that's where the lab comes in, right? And the lab will tell you, oh, I can help you with that. I can tell you, based on what we saw, you know, this is how density affects you know, the resistance to some type of test that you just did. And this is why it's important to tie these two together. And of course, then, you know, with numerical modeling, you can just extend that in different types of situations, right? Once a model has been calibrated and and validated with well-documented case studies, and especially with the advances in the last decade of computational capability, because that's also important in the numerical modeling part, I think really the sky is the limit.
1: When you look towards the future, What are some of the areas of research or even development that are most critical for geotechnical engineers when we're talking about earthquake resilience? What are some of the things that come to mind for you there?
3: It's going to be very important. Obviously, there's going to be a lot, right? And especially as a professor, if you ask me, I can give you like a laundry list if any funding agencies are listening, you know. But I think, however, if we can try to prioritize bringing in a little bit of of the human flavor also in it, I think... In terms as earthquake engineers, we have to place a little bit more focus on how we can apply the things that we already know and perhaps we're learning in places of the world, right, that are perhaps underprivileged, still developing, may not necessarily have the resources of countries like the one we live in now or, you know, some places in Europe or other ones. I don't want to exclude parts of the world, but just making this point that We shouldn't all just sit and feel good that, you know, well, I published this paper, you know, this is a great method, you know, I did this cool test. I know it's going to have an impact, but trying to work a little bit more into how can that impact actually happen to places that need it the most currently, right? Because we still see situations, unfortunately, like, you know, earthquakes that affected Syria, Turkey, other places, right, where... I don't think anybody can really stay and say, oh, we didn't know about this. We didn't know that was going to happen, you know, during that earthquake. Oh, look what we just learned. That's completely shocking. That's not what is happening in these cases. But what is happening is that a lot of the things that, again, for us are kind of part of daily practice, either, you know, in terms of building codes or policies or whatever it is, those have not made it all the way through to places that need it, to places that are very densely populated, places that have infrastructure that's suffering as it is, right? And then an earthquake on top of that just completely takes things out. And that ties also with a word that we all love throwing around, but, you know, to kind of really make societies like that resilient, what is resiliency? Resiliency is not having a community be knocked ba- down by an earthquake and then 10 years later not being able to recover that's the opposite of resiliency, whatever, you know, that word is. And so I just personally think that, you know, and again, as I said, many different, you know, technical things that we can all continue to work and that's what we're trying to do. But my hope, especially for the next generation engineers, is that these issues are going to become as important as the quality of the technical work that you're doing. So, you know, be very good at that, but also always link to but how can we use that to make an impact when it's really needed?
1: It especially means a lot to the folks that are living in earthquake-prone areas. It's not something that's theoretical, especially if you've lived through one of these events, right? Or you've seen it on the news, you've seen the recovery. This is real. So for engineers and planners that are working in earthquake-prone areas, what are some of the key considerations they should keep in mind? We're talking about liquefaction, or liquefaction within gravelly soils or gravelly material I should say
3: in general with liquefaction with liquefaction of gravels of course you know this is an area that I've done more work in because I felt that it was needed because of the challenges we discussed before but I think with soil liquefaction in general and then even more general with earthquake effects on the behavior of soil materials I think it's very important to keep in mind that all of these can result in a wide range of failure modes and so by failure mode you know what we mean is you know the way something will fail or will basically deform or behave in a way that then it's no longer functioning after the earthquake the way it was functioning before and so these types of failure modes can be very very different from the same phenomenon And so I think it's very important when looking at large scale, regional scale planning to incorporate all of these in the analysis. And it's not something that's easy to do. I'm I'm not saying it and throwing it around lightly because, as I said, to go through the procedures that we have, you know, and methodologies for characterizing and everything, there's a lot of input parameter that's needed. That means that you have to have a lot of, you know, soil characterization and the resources are just not enough. And it's just clearly not practical, you know, to just go around, drill holes everywhere, right? So we know exactly what lies underground. That's the the difficult part of our job is you're given a data point, and then it's like, well, what's happening around that data point in a distance of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 feet? Uh, there's a lot of interpolation and a lot of extrapolation. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, that was part of the, the exciting aspect in geotechnical engineering for me. But it can also be quite difficult to handle at times, right? That's a lot of responsibility, a lot of uncertainty that you need to be aware of. And I think that's another thing that needs to be very carefully tracked when you're doing these system-wide, city-level planning efforts and assessments, which are great and it's the way we need to be moving, but to keep track of this uncertainty as it's propagating, especially within earthquake engineering, there's uncertainty in the loading conditions. What will the earthquake be, right? everything we have in our database right now is a earthquake that has happened and will not happen again the same way that it happened it will not happen again right and so you have all this data well i know what's going to happen is not going to be quite like that but to finish the answer on a positive note it can still give you a lot of insight as to what are some of the important aspects that will most likely happen and that i need to deal with but Again, you know, uncertainty in the loading, uncertainty in the ground materials, right? Uncertainty in the response. We need to make sure that we're keeping good track of that so that we can incorporate that in the final answer.
1: So how can listeners and folks that are watching, how can I learn more about your work or how can I get involved in this aspect of geotechnical engineering? I'm sure you'll have
3: links that we could put in the show notes as well, but how can I get involved and how can I learn more about your work? For my work personally, you know, obviously the easiest way is to just send me an email. I have a, my website at the UC Berkeley uh, civil engineering website page as well. I think it's important for those who have done an undergraduate degree and then started work, which is very common, you know, in civil engineering to really consider perhaps going back to school for a master's degree. I think in our profession now to become involved in the really cool stuff, I think the entry degrees now, the master's degree, it really gives you that extra depth in a lot of these areas and really, I think, helps open up your perspective about what really is out there. You know, All the things that we have learned, but then all the things that we're still studying, investigating, trying to uh, better understand consider that if we ever you know and I'm just going to throw that out there if we're ever going to be moving into some other planet you know at some point as you know and as you know people have seen you know in the news the first thing that uh, these missions do is they collect a sample of the ground because you need to understand you know how are you going to anchor everything so this doesn't fly away or you know how are we going to build these new cities and I know I don't want to get too sci-fi, but really the future can go in many different directions. And I think this is a really exciting field where you can feel you're really having an impact. And so people can really consider going back to school. You know, obviously there's great programs. I think our program is amazing and geotechnical engineering. We're actually nearing the deadline for receiving applications for uh, graduate studies And so really excited to look through those and see what the future looks like in our profession, basically. I think another way as a kind of a final part to your question is that I think people should always look, if they're interested in these, for other types of online learning opportunities like webinars or short courses. There's a lot of material out there. Just something that I wanted to share. We've started advertising now, but out of the geosystems program at UC Berkeley, we've put together with my colleagues, Professor John Brain, Professor Dimitrios Ekos, we're putting together three module short courses where different topics on earthquake engineering are going to be discussed. And one of the modules, the second module, will actually be focusing on soil liquefaction. And so all the information for that is again on the website. Um, If someone is interested, I think that that would be an excellent way to get up to speed to all things soil
1: liquefaction. (laughs) We're going to come back in just a minute and close this one out with Dr. Ada Athanasopoulos Zikos in our career factor safety end segment.
0: Before we go on here, I would like to take a minute to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Menard USA. Do you have projects where you are faced with building on soft or loose ground? Does it seem like all the good sites are taken and you're always building on poor soils that are a challenge for conventional foundation approaches? Menard may be able to help. As a specialty ground improvement contractor, Menard works nationally and internationally providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, platforms, and more. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard USA or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardusa.com. That's www.menardusa.com.
1: Welcome back. It's time for our career factor of safety in segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to incorporate a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? Today, of course, we're we'll speaking with Dr. Ada Athanapsopoulos-Zikos from the University of California, Berkeley. So, professor, you've already had a very successful career and you're still in your successful career. Now, when you look back in your career, what's something that you've implemented in your career to give yourself a factor of safety in your career?
3: That's such an interesting question. And I, I love the placement, you know, the factor of safety, you know, kind of coming in there. So just kudos for that. First of all, this is obviously going to be different for every person. But I think what has been important for me is making sure that I interact with a lot of people who I know are going to have different perspectives and therefore different opinions of things. That really helps you collect information that's multicolored, as I like to call it, right? That it doesn't just continue to confirm your already established uh, you know, perceptions, but maybe throws you a curveball and you know, presents you with something that you hadn't thought about. And I think that that's extremely important for all aspects, honestly, you know, professionally, personally, it's just great to have access to people that you can ask about the most random thing, right, and get their opinion, their advice, uh, you know, from their context, and then just bring all that together as you yourself then try to work the what is the right answer for you. That combined with the fact that we should also not be extremely hard on ourselves in that you collect the information you can when faced with an important decision. For example, should I go back to grad school, right? Should I pursue a career in the industry or in academia or, you know, some other option? Um, should I leave this institution or this company to go somewhere else? Should I take a break, right? I mean, these are big questions And they tend to stress us out, which is totally normal. Obviously, you know, it it stresses me out. And so I think you can do your best by collecting a lot of information, right, to make sure you're not missing out on something big that you have not thought about. But then at the end of the day, I think we need to be able to also find peace with a decision we're making at that time, right? And at least for some time, give that decision a clear shot without the what ifs right and i think that that's very important because you can trip yourself up right you make a decision and then you start and as soon as you start you're like but what if i had done this what if i had done that but what if i had gone there right and then without realizing you're taking away from the energy that you could be applying to the decision that you actually made and as i said it's perfectly fine to change your mind right if you can really say you know what i gave it a go i gave it my all and now i'm seeing that this is not for me perfectly fine right people change uh, you know careers lives all the time they can land on their feet you know you need to be prepared that there might be a little bit of a rough patch there but overall you know you can do it but i think it's important to keep that in mind and i've had to learn this the hard way because you know with academia as i'm sure other professions it can be harsh there's a lot of judgment in that we're always being reviewed right submit your paper for review, submit your proposal for review, get your teaching evaluations, submit your package at the university to be reviewed, you know, do this, do that. It's always like all this uh, feedback, which obviously can be very constructive and extremely helpful, right? If done right, but it can be difficult to deal with. You know, I'm not going to lie. No one likes being rejected. And I will tell you now, all of us have been rejected at some point, right? All of us. And I actually think and I really appreciate, you know, colleagues like Jack Baker, you know, from Stanford, who are actually very outspoken about these experiences, because I think, you know, when I was a younger faculty member and definitely a grad student, it feels like all these professors and professionals, you know, my God, like, how are they doing it? And they're always this successful. And then, you know, when you start looking into the closet, you realize, no, actually, you know, they're not always, you know. But what separates them is that they take that, they use that and they move forward with it and they get better. It's really about, again, you know, information, data, right? We're in the era of data. Anyway, collect your data, make your decision, commit and give it your all. And then, you know, you can at least move forward because you'll know you did your best.
1: Professor, thank you so much for coming on. You shared great insights with us. And no, that this is going to be information and advice. that's going to be really helpful for those that listen. So you gave your email address. Is that the best way for people to find you the email address or the webpage? Okay, we'll have that in the show notes. So
3: Yeah, and I, I can say it. It's adda.zekkos at berkeley.edu. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is great. Thank you, Jared, for having me. This was a really exciting opportunity and I'm very glad to have done it.
1: I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 92, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, I wish you the very best in all of your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace.
0: dot org.